Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Well, I am confident that you would love to run back in here and have one more lecture. Uh, I'm sure that's high on your agenda. So, uh, Oh, no? You think I'm wrong? Well, I'll be. What's your name? I'm going to use you for an illustration of this. Okay, all right, okay. I know Jackson, yeah, got that one. All right. I'm going to do a couple of things with you that are related to your personal wholeness and, and your own story. Um, I, I hope this will make sense because I said last night a line that's not a throwaway line. All of us knew we needed redeemed by sin from Jesus, by Jesus. What we didn't know is I need redeemed from my story by Jesus. That's actually deeper than it sounds. Because the power of the backstory is actually driving your life. I promise you. Um, this, is, this is probably an hour lecture and you don't get the hour, so I'm kind of throwing some things at you here. Most of you live, and it's not your fault, you just, I did too. I mean, we all do. You live by a surface story that you intellectually believe and, and a surface story that, that is true, but you actually have a deeper story that drives your emotions, and there's a contradiction in those two stories, and your deeper story actually drives you. You want to know why you do porn? Your deeper story is driving it. You want to know why you get your feelings hurt as bad as they do? Your deeper story is driving it. Your deeper story. What's, what do I mean by that? This is a little, I, I turned this sideways, but there's nowhere to, to do this thing, so um, it's going to look a little crowded, what I'm about to do. But. So let's say you and I had a couple, three days where we had a couple, three-hour conversation every day. And my question would be, tell me who you are. Tell me your story. Well, nobody has their story all laid out. I mean, my goodness, we've got a few talking points we use, but it's, it's complex, and when we tell a story, we circle back and go, oh, I forgot to say this. And, but So let me boil it down. When you finished and I began to, to tell your story back to you, let's say I did it like it was a storyboard for a movie or play, which I wouldn't. But I began to say, okay, so if I, if I get your story right, you were two when your dad walked out. And, and your dad was no longer in your life. And, and you were four when, when, when you got the stepdad. And the stepdad didn't really want you and the kids. He wanted mom and you just kind of came along in the deal. And, and, and I, again, you, you, you were um, in first grade and, and there was a sleepover and you wet the bed and some of the kids knew and you kind of got that teasing and and, and it kind of changed some things, and you, you shame. And, and you were in second grade when that happened, and fourth grade when that happened, and seventh grade. And, and I began to go through, and you were a sophomore in high school when that happened, and, 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 and so we walk it through. Okay, so you're a senior in college now. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of it, yeah. I mean, you kind of figured out you were smart here, and okay. And I say, is that your story? You go, yeah, that, that's pretty much my story. 
I go, great, thanks. So I go and pick up the phone, and I call my good friend, the novelist, Stephen King. We're, we're just like that, me, me and Stephen King. Most of you would know who Stephen King is, the horror writer. Okay. And I invite my good friend Stephen King in, and I say, Stephen, would you write a book for me, if you wouldn't mind? Uh, I, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to write a book where you take these plot points and write the novel. And Stephen, I go through all of it, and he goes, okay, yeah, I'd be happy to. So he's gone six, seven months. He comes back, and, and he brings me a book, and I start reading that book. Honk or do scares the bejeebers out of me. I mean, it's a dark novel. That's my key point. It's a dark novel. And it scares me to, to death. And I say, man, that's a powerful book. Here's Stephen, here's $37.50. Thanks for writing that for me. Here you go. And Stephen leaves. You don't probably know the name Jan Caron. Probably not. She's New York Times best-selling author of many, many books. But uh, let me use Steven Spielberg. So Stephen King has left, and I, and I, and I get a hold of, of Steven Spielberg, and I say, Stephen, would you come in? And Stephen, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to write a screenplay for me. I'd like you to write something. And I want you to use these plot points. And he gets the exact same one. Wet the bed in first grade, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. He's gone about six, seven, eight months. He comes back and he brings it and I read it. And it is one of the most high-fiving, fist-bumping, I mean, incredible, joyful. I mean, your chest is out. It is a victory one. Would everybody kind of track with me? And you go, wait a second. How can the same plot points drive a dark, sadder story? And the exact same plot points drive a triumphant, wonderful, extraordinary story. Here's why. Because what has happened to you does not dictate your life. It's the narrative that you created to make sense out of what happened to you that actually drives your life. And you have created a, a narrative to make sense out of it. And quite frankly, the person who started that narrative was probably about a four-year-old child who started trying to make sense out of life. And a six-year-old child added to it. And an eight-year-old child, and I'm not mad at that child, don't misunderstand me. That child was trying to figure out and trying to make sense of it. But that child started a narrative, and that narrative has been added onto, and a 10th grade high school boy added to it, and a junior in college added to it, and, and you tell me that's your story. And the, Jesus shows up and goes, no. No. I want you to cut that kid some slack. That kid was doing the best he could to try to make sense out of life, but children are a magnet for pain, but they're terrible interpreters of it. And the story you're building has to be redeemed. A story where Christ comes and says, no, no, that's not who you are. And Christ begins to retell you your story, only this time he tells it in an entirely different narrative because he's going to the deepest part of your life and he's challenging the narrative that you have. 
I'd be worth something if I were smarter. I would be, if my dad just would give me respect, I'd be okay. If I just were funnier, if I just hadn't been shot down by that girl, if I hadn't been the guy who did that as a sophomore, I've ruined my life. I, look, what I did as a sophomore, I've already ruined my life. And there's a deeper story, and so we live at this surface level. But the deeper stories, actually, you want to know why you get mad at guys so easily? Because that deeper story is wrong. But it's the only story you know. I'm going to use a different way of saying the exact same thing. Exact same thing. You grew up with 5,000 post-it notes on you. You're dumb, you're stupid, you're funny, you're smart, you're athletic. You've gotten post-it notes that told you you were loved. You've got post-it notes that told you you were an idiot. You've got post-it notes from people of all kinds. Some horrible things were said to you. I, I know they were. I know what your dad said when he was mad. I know what mom said when she was frustrated. So that thousand post-it notes that are all over you, are other people, and then you learn the skill, and so those post-it notes have your own handwriting all over them. Let me tell this story tonight. I apologize if it's a duplication. I don't know. I, I remember being a 10, 11-year-old boy, and I grew up on a ranch farm. My dad was dirt poor. My dad um, was trying to make it work. My dad is, is just working 24 hours a day trying to make it work. I grew up in a man's world. I'm on a tractor before. I can't even touch the clutch. It's too far down. To, to stop, I'd have to turn the key off. I grew up in that world. My dad got kicked out of high school as a sophomore in high school for fighting. My dad never went back. My dad lived out of a bottle for probably five, six, seven years. Kind of straightened up in the military. Came back and married the valedictorian. Explain that one to me. But I grew up in a man's world where my dad could care almost nothing about book smarts. But my dad deeply respected street smarts. And the group of men that I grew up around, street smarts, you just don't make stupid mistakes because stupid mistakes mean you're a stupid person and a stupid person isn't worth much. I'm unhooking a tractor as a 10 or 11-year-old kid. It had a disc behind it. Some of you from Illinois would know what a disc is, but it's an implement that turns dirt over. We'd borrowed it from a neighbor. It's probably 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. It's dark, and I didn't really know the disc. It had three hydraulic hoses, and in the dirt and the darkness, I only saw two of the hydraulic hoses. And I unsnapped the two as I pulled the tractor away and pulled the pin. I didn't see the third hydraulic hose, and I snapped it. My dad had a pretty violent temper, but it wasn't dad I was afraid of. My memory is I'm in a barn and I can't stop throwing up. I have just the dry heaves. I just keep throwing up. You're so stupid. You're just so stupid. You're just so damn stupid. You're just stupid. You see, in my value system, to make a mistake and have a failure, it wasn't about a thing. It was about you. If you knew me as a kid, if you knew me as a young adult, if you knew me your age, embarrassment. I, I, I very seldom make a fool of myself except if I'm embarrassed. 
My temper will spike when I get embarrassed. My sense of emotions closing down when I get embarrassed. Now, good news is, I've had plenty of practice at embarrassment, and so we've gotten better at it, okay? But my deeper story is there. Christ had to redeem my deeper story. And I had to come back and refigure that. The first thing I would tell you guys is I don't think you probably even know your own story. I don't think you do. I think you know the version that you started. Many of you, as a quick illustration, many of you are owning things you should never own. They were things that impacted you and things that affected you, but they were, not, they were things not about you. It impacted you, it affected you, but it wasn't about you. I want you to drive in your car, in your mind's eye, busiest street in Bloomington. And another car pulls out and, and hits you as it's pulling out from a, one of the stores. You would be crazy. You would be crazy to jump out of your car and run to that driver and go, what would you have against me? Why did you pick me out of all, this, uh, all the people? What, what do you got against me? What do you have against my white car? What, what, what do you got against my white car? I was going to the doctor. Why are you trying to keep me from going to the doctor? Now, you'd be an idiot. Because it impacted you and it affected you, but it really wasn't about you. Anybody who was driving by would have had the same thing. Some of you were molested by a child as a child. And you go, what makes me so worthless that my uncle, my brother, what made me, what made me so my dad would, no, 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 kid, no, 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 wrong story. It impacted you and affected you, but it wasn't about you. Any five-year-old child in that situation would have the same thing. Any confused seventh-grade boy would have the same thing. It impacted you, affected you, but it wasn't about you. And you've been writing the about you into your story because children are a magnet for pain, but they're terrible interpreters of it. So go back to my metaphor. I meet Jesus, and one of the first things Jesus does is he just begins to strip all of those Post-it notes away and go, child, it's not who you are. It's not how I see you. That's not what you are. When I meet Jesus, he begins to help me walk through my entire life and go, what you've been believing in your deeper story is not accurate. Here's your real story. If I took you through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John through the four Gospels, there are about 213, 212 to 215 events that are recorded in the life of Jesus. There's about 96 or 98 places they take place. If I ask you, I want you to take your story and I want you to meet Jesus in those 213 places and, you know, 213 events in the 96 or 98 places, what do you see? You're going to see him with, sit with a woman at the well. A woman whose deeper story is a pretty screwed up story. And she would go, well, it's based on reality. And Jesus would say, please, ma'am, I have a drink. And she would say, you're a Jew and you'll speak to me, a woman, and, and, and you're a Jewish male and you would drink out of my, my cup that I would come from. And, and Jesus begins to work with a woman and he helps her 
write a new story. Zacchaeus. Nobody would go to Zacchaeus' house. You're an absolute loser. Peter. Simon the Pharisee. The sinful woman. Levi. I don't care. Just keep going. Going to tell you your real story. Your road to wholeness is not to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Your first step in actually your wholeness is to quit believing this crazy, stupid, immature story that's the best you had. Wasn't your fault. I don't. You might want to cut that kid some slack, that sixth grade boy or six year old boy or sixth grade boy. He was doing the best he could, but he tells his own story wrong. And let Christ retell you your story. Now, we could go a long way with this, and I. I'm going to go a little further. I think my own redemption is clearly that Christ forgave a sinner. By the way, our own sins confuse us and the sins against us confuse us. I was redeemed, but the transformation began when I finally had to humble myself and say my story is probably not the way I think it is. Christ, you tell me my story. Zephaniah, Christ, you sing over me. You meet all these characters in Scripture over and over again. You couldn't be there physically to meet Jesus in the flesh. They're your surrogates. They stood in your place. And you want to know what Jesus is saying to you? The power of the deeper story. Now, some of you go, okay, Randy, you're basically given another version of Jesus loves me, and I, and I am. But here's what I know. I know you, it's not the first time you've ever heard the fact that Jesus loves me. Deeply loves me. Loves me in a way I, I, I don't understand. But you don't believe that at the deepest part of your life. You still believe that crazy, stupid story that you started as a fourth grade boy. So you believe Jesus loves you. You could even lecture on it, but you believe that right about here. I can intellectually speak about it, talk about it, tell other people about it, but when I foul up, when things didn't go right, when I begin to have my own failure, I go back to the deepest part of my heart and start living out of that story. That's why you're a contradiction. So the object is to take what you intellectually understand and Jesus loves me, and I've got to move that truth of what he says about me to here, and I've got to move the lie out. That's what you're actually doing at this age. You've left home. You're no longer kids. You're young men. And young men are on an epic journey every bit as much as Sam and Frodo. That's your journey. And I am looking for the truth that Christ was sing over me. Well, what's the truth now? And again, I'm trying to think what to include, not include, so I don't kill you. Let me just take you to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is incredible. Incredible. Genesis 1 is a passage that everything else in Scripture matches up with, but, but it goes like this. You realize that when God began to create, he creates everything out of his imagination. He wants a mountain, he imagines, he puts it there. He, he, he wants animals, he creates them as of imagination. I told somebody last night, I'm only half speaking tongue-in-cheek, Genesis 1, give it to your 
literature teacher and they would say it's poorly written. Stay with me. Because there's a repetitive phrase used, I think, 10 or 11 times in there, and that repetitive phrase is it reproduced after its own kind, and it reproduced after its own kind, and it reproduced after its own kind. And God's making the things that have imagination, they reproduce after their own kind. Why? Because God doesn't have a thesaurus. No, God has a highlighter, and he's hitting something he didn't want you to miss. Because it comes in verse 26. In verse 26, he makes a radical left turn. In verse 26, and then God said, let us make man in our image out of our likeness. And for the first time, God makes something out of his own likeness in a shoe. You're the only thing on the face of this earth that it's worth and value. It's just because of who you are. There are three things that will happen in verse 26. He will make you in his image. Basically, the last night I just gave a little uh, hint of it, but, but you're the shadow of God. He's the real thing. You're this. You want to know what lostness looks like? You tried to be a shadow of everything else. You tried to be a barn, and you weren't a barn, and a cow, and you weren't a cow. You tried to be what the world, and, and when you come back, and when, when I find who God is, and I actually become the shadow of God as I was intended to be, I find my shape back, and I know who I am. Oh, he's the greater, and I'm the lesser. Don't misunderstand. But I'm made in the image of God. Your worth and value is declared. It's not earned. In fact, in the next verse, it says, and he advised them to co-rule with him. Come on, kid, you're not just to be a minion sitting in the back seat. Come on, sit in the front. I want you to rule over these things for me and with me. You're invited to be a partner with God. That won't change all the way through Scripture. And here's the third thing, verse 28, and he blessed them. To bless is to speak words of affirmation and affection over them. Well, wait a second. Don't bless them until they turn out to be something. Wait to see how they turn out. No, no. He speaks words of blessing. For what it's worth, your worth and value has nothing to do with you being the funniest guy in the room, the cleverest guy in the room, the smartest guy in the room. It, it has, no, no. If I were to reach in my billfold and pull out a $100 bill, which would be magic, but if I were to pull out a $100 bill out of my, out of my billfold, I, I need you to humor me. If I ask you, how much is this $100 bill worth, your answer would be, yeah, you're going, dumb guy. Okay, $100. So I take that $100 bill, and I go out, and I find mud out there. And, and I take it, and I throw it in the mud, and I take a stick, and I just kind of move it around in the mud, and I hold it up, and I say, now how much is it worth? Your answer would be? Okay, so that wasn't quite enough. So what I need to actually do is I'm going to go find some manure. The, the local dog came through here, and I found where the dog had been, and I and I took it, and, and, and I pitched the $100 in the dog manure, and I took a stick, and I, I, I posted it around, and then I even took a glove and picked it up. And now I say, now how much is it worth? And your answer is? And you're looking at me like an idiot if I'm doing that, going, I have not changed the value of that. All I've showed you how stupid I am to trade a $100 bill. Because somebody else said it's worth and value. Somebody else determined it. You spent your whole life trying to measure up to something, become something, to self-actualize. If I could just measure up, if I could just become, if I were just smart, if I were just prettier, if I were just this, if I were just that, if I just had a girl, you're waiting for validation from everywhere on the face of this earth. Somebody, please bless me. And God goes up and goes, wait a second. I already spoke the blessing over you. You can be a woman at the well who's had five husbands, and I'm still going to speak a word of blessing over you. You can be Levi, I'm going to speak a word of blessing to you. Most of you that have screwed up, and, and, and all of you have. Honestly, you screwed up because you were looking for a blessing. 
Every one of you that ever got drunk, you didn't get drink. You drunk because you liked the taste of alcohol. You got drunk because I, I thought there was a group that might bless me. Any of you that lost your virginity, you didn't lose it because you're just so sexual. You lost your virginity because the whole thing had been built up to somebody please bless me. And you're either living from the blessing or you're running ragged looking everywhere for the blessing. I want to get the right job. I want to get the right internship. I want to get the right uh, career. I need to get the right amount of money. I need to prove to my dad. I need to prove to somebody. I need to prove to myself that I'm not this. All of that is the deeper story that's just not right. Not when the Lord has already spoken a blessing over you. Oh, don't misunderstand me. You're a sinner. You got lost and confused. You've been your own worst enemy in lots of ways, too. But you've got to be redeemed to the right story. It's probably another 40 minutes we probably ought to do on that one, but does that, does that make sense? So chase after Jesus and decide that his story is more probably more accurate than this fifth-grade boy story you have. Chase after Jesus. Let his story change you. I'm going to hit one other thing. I sent somebody to get something to erase. Look how clever I am. I want to hit one other thing, and it is so random. What have I got, 10 minutes? Okay. Don't say that to a preacher. Bad things happen. (laughs) Bad things happen. Anybody want this sweater? I'm about to donate it to somebody if you'd like it. Why is porn such a problem in your life? Tonight we're going to talk about it in a way that I think will turn a light on. And it's not a porn talk tonight, but I think you'll understand. But I'm going to hit one little piece that I can't put in tonight. And so I need you to take this and know it fits a larger context tonight. And I know that not every guy in this room Porn has been a problem in the sense of just being devoured by it. But most of you are pretty familiar with what I'm going to be talking about. It's interesting that sin is never called just in Scripture a line that you step over and go, wow, I guess I shouldn't have done that. I need to step back. It's never called that. Sin is called in Scripture a trap. It's called an entanglement. Sin is, 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 is also, you talk about spiritual formation. Sin does spiritual formation. It just does bad spiritual formation. Sin is not just, hey, I crossed over here, I need to cross back. Proverbs chapter 5, the bird is caught in a net. It is entangled. The bird doesn't get caught in the net and go, wow, I don't think I'll do that again without also needing release. Why is porn such a regular part of so many guys who want to love Jesus? Because you don't fully understand the consequences of the sin that you played with. This is a guy named Dr. Tim Anderson is who I've listened to two or three times. He runs treatment centers. He's, he, he's a prolific writer. It, it just, this, this comes from Dr. Tim Anderson with my language. 
Do you know what's actually physically happening to you in your brain with porn? Let's just play with it. There are two things in your brain. I'm going to hit three parts of the brain. You have the amygdala. Uh, the amygdala is the part of your brain that you tell you the house is on fire. Uh, wow, panic, panic, you know. Uh, it's, it's fight, flight, or freeze. I mean, um, this thing should be sounding like a smoke detector going off in a small house whenever something goes wrong, your amygdala. You have the prefrontal cortex up here. The prefrontal cortex is where your logic is. Man, I'm a Christian guy. Why would I look at a nude woman and, and a guy having sex with her, and I'm a single guy? Why would I masturbate inside a, a, a shower? And, I mean, personal sex, you talk about something that's absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, I'm married by myself. No, you can't be married by yourself, okay? Sex is designed for a relationship. So why would those things be so prevalent for young men? So many more things I'd like to put in this, but my apology for you. There's a middle part of your brain, not literally middle, but it's, it's kind of in there. It's part of your uh, limbic, limbic system. Um, it's actually the short, I'm going to call it the, the VI there's a part of your brain that is incredibly powerful. It's when you were a little boy and your grandma tucked you in front of the fireplace and put the blanket over you and gave you hot chocolate and your grandma kind of sang songs. There's a part of your brain that began to just release chemicals of this is as good as it gets. This is terrific. I feel safe. I feel loved. I feel tucked in. It's it begins to throw out chemicals all over the brain, the limbic system. When you walk down the aisle someday with a woman, and you think, this woman trusts me, and we get to go live life together, and this woman I can trust, this part of your brain should kick in and just flood you with this is as good as it gets. When they hand you your baby at a hospital and you, you hold this little girl or boy and you think, I've never had a greater privilege in life, this should kick in. This should kick in when good friends are having a good conversation over a cup of coffee and you go, these are such great guys. And I get the privilege of the friendship. It should kick in. In short, this is designed to be fed from the king's table. That's what it's designed for. But the brain is stupid. It just is. I, I'm not mad at God or anything. You can trick it and fool it. You can feed it from the garbage can. You can trick the body. It's the reason we ride roller coasters. You can trick the body in and so people ride a roller coaster, and if the body is throwing out all kinds of chemicals, we know we're not falling off a cliff. But the body, it's the reason some people who are really dumb and stupid like horror movies. I'm, I'm joking. Um, they, I know it's syrup. I know it's fake. I know it's actors. But I can trick my body, and my body gives me chemicals that I, I, I love horror movies. The body is dumb. 
He will be sexually aroused by pixels on a screen. He'll be sexually aroused by a prostitute. He'll be sexually aroused by self-manipulation. It can be sexually aroused by a sister or a son with incest. You can, you can trick the body. So what happens if you're an insecure kid and you bump into porn and you find it, the body tricked this part of the brain and it begins to throw out chemicals. Chemicals that soothe, chemicals that calm for a second. Oh, only for a second, because it came out of the garbage can. So two hours later, you feel more shame. Two hours later, you feel more stupid. An hour and a half later, you're going, what in the world was that about? But you can feed it and train it to come from the garbage can. Well, why? Why doesn't the amygdala kick in, and why didn't the prefrontal cortex kick in? Well, it's part of the trap of sin. The trap of sin impacts me emotionally and physically. I mean, the amygdala should say, don't do this. Yeah, my roommate's gone, and I'm here by myself, and I feel a little lonely, and I don't know where my friends are, and... But your amygdala should go, wait a second, you feel shame every time you do this. You realize that you're hurting your future relationships. Your prefrontal cortex should go, you know what? I memorized these texts this week, and they just don't match up. Why didn't these two rescue you? Here's why. Because the brain doesn't play fair. This part of your brain has two chemical arms. Those two chemical arms reach out and like a light switch, it turns off the amygdala. It turns off the prefrontal cortex. If I ask you later, why'd you do porn last night? Your typical answer is, I don't know. I wasn't going to... I, I felt the pull. I, 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 I don't know why I did. And you're telling the truth. Now, make sure you hear this. What it actually means is you have a small window that you don't get to negotiate with sin. Because the longer you negotiate with it, the more unfair it plays. My illustration would be this. So we're in this room and carbon monoxide begins to come in this room. Odorless, tasteless. It begins to come underneath the doors, begins to seep out the vents. You begin to not feel right. Something's not right. You get a sense that this, I don't know what it is. You have a short window to respond and if you respond when you know you should respond, you're going to be fine. You're going to bust out those doors. I'm going to run. I'm going to get the doors open. I'm getting outside. I'm getting out of this. In your short window, you get to respond. But what if you don't respond with flee or run? 
then you lose your ability to make a choice because carbon monoxide will just put you to sleep and it will do what it will do. The reason many of you keep returning to porn and you keep going, I'm going to use more willpower next time. I'm going to use more willpower next time. No, no, you're not. Because the very trap of sin is it shuts off the places your willpower comes from. I don't mean this, you know, it's an exegetical, but, but so why did Joseph run from Potiphar's wife? Because to stand around and negotiate, bad things are going to happen. Why are you told to flee from sin? Because if you stay around and negotiate, bad things are going to happen. Jesus clearly tells us that sin doesn't come from outside of us. It comes from inside of us. Okay? It doesn't come from the food you eat. It, it, it comes from your heart. Okay? But Jesus says the stupidest things. Because he sees sin differently than I see it. He's trying to protect me, and he says, if your right hand, cut it off. If, if your eye, well, you and I could cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes, and I still would have trouble with this. But his point is being radical problems require radical solutions. And sin is not to be negotiated and played with, and your playing with it is not going to ever work. You are like the bird entangled in the net. So I'm going to have to have Jesus set me free. I'm going to have to have the Christian community set me free. I'm going to have to have a number of things. But part of it is I've got to recognize I've got to stop this stupid hesitation and negotiating, and I'm going to do better next time. No, it'll turn this off and this off. My illustration I might use is, I don't care the finest basketball player in this room. How would you get along playing Kevin Durant one-on-one? Lousy. Oh, he might let you score every now and then. He might let you play a little bit. But whenever Kevin Durant wants to shut you down, you're done. Whenever he wants to score on you, he's scoring on you. To negotiate with sin and say, God, take away the want to, and that's when I'll be done. No. No. It's a negotiation. Your community, your walk with the Holy Spirit, your decisions in life to make wise decisions. Right now, for many of you in this room, not everybody, and I know that, but for many of you in this room, your willpower is down here. You're going to have to put wisdom up here. You don't wait till wisdom protects me. I mean, my, my willpower protects me. You let wisdom protect you. Some of you, you're not going to get well till you give the guy across the hall your phone and you say, give it to me at 8 o'clock in the morning when I go to class. I'll give it back to you when 11, when we get done. I'll check anything I need to check. But for the next three months, I'm done with this damn thing. And I'm not cussing as much as I'm using the biblical word damnable. It is the thing that is destroying me. Use wisdom. Many of you in this room are going to have to come to the conclusion that you can get forgiveness by God alone, just you and God in a prayer closet, but you get healing in community. And I don't want your community to be just have people that you just confess to. We, we use accountability groups a lot. Nothing wrong with that word in particular. We, we just ruined it a little bit. Accountability groups are often the people that I confess to after I failed. I don't want an accountability group for that. I want a neighborhood watch. I want four or five guys who are walking through the neighborhood before the crime occurs. 
I want you in the morning when you wake up and go, you know, this is the kind of day, the kind of day I feel apathy, the kind of day that often I give into, the kind of day I feel sad, the kind of day I'm just mad, the kind of day, and I can kind of tell this is the kind of day that's a trap for me. I want you to pray for me today. I want you to know that. I, I, can I meet you for a cup of coffee today? And here's my phone. I don't think I should keep it tonight. When you raise wisdom up, that gives you a chance for the Holy Spirit to work with you to bring willpower up. But willpower is actually being defeated by the very power of sin. Now, to stick with a silly illustration, if you're going to play Kevin Durant, you better call a couple of us to help you. He has no power over two or three of us. The bird in the net cannot do this privately. The bird in the net has to go through a process that involves us. And it involves wisdom, knowing my amygdala and my prefrontal cortex are getting shut off. And that's what's happening. Does that make sense? Does it resonate as accurate? Gentlemen, those women deserve better. They deserve men, not boys that grew up. Those, those women deserve. I'm not even talking about marriage or engagement or dating. I'm talking about men and their life. And you are cheating these women if you don't become men. Men who befriend. I'm far more interested in you befriending people than I'm you dating people. Dating is something that will come out of dear, sweet befriending. I'll talk about it later on tonight in a different way. We don't befriend very well. We just start dating. Work on your wholeness. Work at befriending. And let's find repair. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.